So this opportunity to reflect on the Dhamma people are teaching Dhamma there's many Dhamma teachers these days but what is the Dhamma you know so then this question so what are we teaching and is teaching the right word for it. So like just examining language itself, teaching is like always puts me and you in a particular relationship. I'm the teacher, you're the student. So teaching Dhamma, I become the authority and you're the disciples. Reflecting on Dhamma, is more accurate. This is just my way of thinking. <clears throat> because Dhamma is the way it is. It's not something you can teach. You can, you know, you can teach words. You can speculate on how to define Dhamma in English or any other language and then uh, be caught in arguments about whose translation is the more accurate, what is a precise definition of Dhamma according to the Pali Canon, and what is the precise English equivalent, and we can spend the, our lives just arguing about how to define Pali words, or teaching Dhamma, is it teaching the Dhamma teachings, the, the Four Noble Truths, the dependent origination, because they're all just words, you know, so Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha are words. And how they affect us, how words affect you, you reflect on that. So just reflecting on the word Dhamma, you know, for some, most of us who weren't born into Buddhist families. It's a exotic word that we acquire when we're adults. For those coming from Buddhist countries, Buddhist culture, then it's quite part of a cultural assumption. 
So like in Sri Lanka or Thailand or Cambodia, Burma, then they have these, you know, cultural identities with these words. And do you believe in the Dhamma? Do you follow the Dhamma, the Dhamma teachings? <clears throat> Just pointing out the limitation of words, not try to disparage using words, but reflecting isn't words, it's not about defining or trying to find the exact equivalent from Pali to English, but reflecting on the way it is. So then this statement is like this, is using words not to define anything or to teach you anything, but to encourage reflection. This ability to be the witness, the observer. So in the, this, this is, you know, trying to, to, when I talk about reflecting on the Dhamma, then that's what I'm doing. Reflecting on words, on the, the limitation of words, on how they affect me. I can't tell how they affect you, you know, whether they inspire or bewilder, confuse or repel. That only you can know through reflecting on what you're feeling at this very present moment here and now. So it's up to you to do that. It's not up to a so-called teacher or a guru or anything to, to tell you what you should be feeling at this moment because that's asking the impossible. You know, how it'd be the ultimate control freak to try to tell you how you should feel at this moment is uh, going beyond the limits of being uh, one who's reflecting on Dhamma, but trying to trying to convince you, convert you, compel you to become a Buddhist of some sort or another. So like conversion, converting you to Buddhism, converting you to the way I think, my teaching, the, uh, the Ajahn Sumedho tradition, the Ajahn Shah tradition, the Theravada tradition, the Thai forest tradition, you know, these are all words that we commonly use. <clears throat> and so, when we don't reflect on tradition, when we just operate from what we're told by somebody, by a teacher, or what we read in a book, then we are conditioned by those kind of words. We either believe or disbelieve them. Think they're bright, intelligent, inspiring words, or boring, confusing, or stupid. We have these kind of adjectives to describe our own reaction to what we hear. So even our opinion about what I'm saying, whether you think it's helpful or unhelpful, confusing or enlightening, 
These are words that you might be using. But reflecting is even aware of the words that you accept or not accept what you're hearing is right or wrong, good or bad. So what is the deathless reality, the Dhamma, the unshakable heart, the unshakable mind, what is unflappable, what isn't just something you create as by emotional reactions to what you're hearing or experiencing through your senses, what is it right now that you can abide in, rest in, that's not programmed into you by some cultural source, teacher, or tradition of any sort? And so we call that awareness, consciousness, here and now. Apparent here and now, timeless. Be here and now, the constant reference to a good advice, be here, be now, because that's all there ever is. There's only now and here. So this is the end of the year, the last month of 2021, and uh, this is a convention. Because there's other calendars, there are other versions of describing the sequence during one year's time sequence. the end of the year, it feels like this. It's winter time. It's getting cold. Christmas time. New Year's is in a couple of weeks. The winter's retreat in January begins in January. This is all the future, isn't it? Right now, here and now, is the winter's retreat is what you imagine for the future. But to reflect on that means not to grasp the, the words, but to recognize that time is an illusion. It's not our reality. It's not where we are. Time is a limitation of conditioned phenomena, like the body is a time-bound condition. It was born, grows up, gets old, and dies. The same with thoughts, with emotions, with all habits, with the senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, all thinking, all words, all languages, are, give this, this sense of time is our reality. So we, we tend to not reflect on the present like this, but to live in the past or in the future.
So that is the conditioned habit pattern that we've acquired since we were born. We've been conditioned to, to believe in that the real, the our ultimate reality is the real world, the material world, the changing of the new year as our reality, the sun, moon, and stars, planet Earth with its changing conditions, its climate changes, its pandemics, <clears throat> past civilizations. They're all memories right now, like the Roman Empire. What is it at this very moment is we have memories. We don't have direct memories, but we've read about it. We've heard about it. Or the British Empire. What happened to it? You know, it, you know, and at this moment, what is the British Empire but a concept, an illusion that we can believe in and operate from or regard as rubbish or no longer appropriate to the present age? We have, we might form opinions and views about does the British Empire really exist? They still give OBEs and all kinds of titles called members of the British Empire. But what is it at this very moment, you know? And this is reflecting. It's not making value judgments about whether, about Britain or the empire or the rights or wrongs of colonialism or the empire of the past or the mistakes or the, that we can be critical of things done in the past. That's all memory that arises in the present. And we might particular, we take a particular view in our critical mind. And the critical mind is conditioned. It's not Dhamma. The thinking mind, its very function is to compare one thing with another, to, to create concepts of right and wrong, good and bad, true and false, heaven and hell. So one thing that religions tend to do is scare you into believing what they teach. Like if you don't believe in God, you go to hell. Well, that's scary for someone who's, who's not reflecting on anything, but caught in the momentum of belief or disbelief. Or is there a God, or is it Christian God, is the only God, or, you know, we these are all concepts, views, and opinions that people grasp and operate from. And then there's arguments and quarrels, because not everybody has the same view, the same opinion. Not We're not all grasping the same concepts. So the one of the interesting contentious problems of the present day is whether you're vaccinated or unvaccinated. <laughs> this, this case, what does that do to you when I say 
are you vaccinated or unvaccinated? And you reflect on it, you feel like this. That you can know. You can't help the way you feel. But you can be aware of it as a condition that arises and ceases rather than a position to take and create strong views for or against vaccination. So this is wisdom. This is what we call the developing wisdom, using wisdom with our lives rather than operating from particular positions that might be right or wrong, good or bad, true or false. So it's interesting to reflect on our own intellectual experience because language is conditioned. It's not, it's not dhamma, it's not natural. It's an artifice that you acquire after, when you're growing up. You're learning to think and to be educated and to take on the concepts of your mother, father, family, gender, race, nationality, political parties, and so forth. are all artificial conventions that can be right or wrong. But when we live in a, in, with just the critical mind that judges everything as right or wrong, good or bad, what is it like when we, when we are stuck in our righteous view that I'm right and if you don't agree with me, you're all wrong? What is that like as experience here and now? You know, so you investigate, you question yourself. Because I can say, I'm right. I'm absolutely right. I know I'm right. And then when I look at that, when I reflect on it, it's like this. It's a tension. I create tension by clinging to righteousness. You begin to feel it. You, then you feel everyone that doesn't agree with you is wrong and they're and then you, you form prejudices, biases, or aversion, or won't speak to them because they don't agree and they're all wrong. And then you make your value judgments to destroy evil and stand up for what's righteous and good. And all of this is, is just habits that we develop, grasping these empty concepts without knowing what we're doing. We're not awakening to the way it is. We're just operating from cultural biases, religious biases, political views, <clears throat> personal preferences, personal identities. And that's why the world is in conflict. You know, why there is so many problems politically social problems everywhere. It's not just one country or a few countries, but it's absolutely everywhere where human beings exist. There's endless conflicts between the rich and poor, between men and women, between races, between Jews, Christians, and Muslims, between 
Theravada Buddhists and Mahayana Buddhists, you know, they're all, we've, we take this position, we've been, we probably don't know any better, we've never been encouraged to reflect on anything, but just to believe. So conditioning is, is, is all about belief, it's all artificial. So the ego, Sakyaditi, is an artifice. It's not what you are. You're not a conditioned personality that's stuck in holding to views that you acquired when you were a child or rebelling against them. Because sometimes we rebel what we've been taught when, what our parents taught us when we were young. But even rebellion is clinging to another position. It's not about reflecting on the way it is. So I found it quite... Um, I really enjoy doing this reflection. Because this is how you learn about yourself. How you can see through your, the, your conditioning, not to get rid of it or destroy it, not to be, you can't become unconditioned, but you can awaken to conditioning for what it is. It arises, ceases, it's impermanent, it's not self, and it's suffering. When we grasp, when we take these fixed positions, then we suffer accordingly. So, just noticing how the future, when I, just in daily life here at Amravati, thinking about the future. It's kind of suffering because it's unknown and planning a, a next year to go visit my sister in America and on and on like that and then think of all the problems with visas and and quarantine and Omicron pandemic and my aged sister and having to go through airports and checks, packing suitcases, unpacking suitcases, visiting different places in North America. Sometimes it's entertaining, sometimes it's kind of fun to do that, other times it's it's just, you know, you think this is wearisome, all this travel. So the mood can change. It depends on so many other factors. Or the past, remembering the past. So when you grasp the past, then you suffer because the past is an illusion in the present. It's a condition that comes and goes. So past is memory. And memory has no real substance to it. It's described as like one of these soap bubbles 
when you puncture it, when you touch it, it just disappears, vanishes. There's nothing to it. There's no heart, no soul, nothing in it but an illusory presence that is that vanishes. So all memories are like that. So when we grasp memories, then we we suffer. And suffering is like this. Feeling remorse, feeling guilt, over making mistakes in the past, or disobeying the rules, or not obeying the laws, or insulting somebody, being deliberately malicious, or, you know, we all have histories of our past that we're ashamed of, where we feel guilty about. And so when we grasp these memories, we suffer. The memories themselves are just empty phenomena. But yet, how many people suffer endless problems with guilt and remorse throughout their lives because of mistakes made in the past, of not being perfect, of not being a saint, not being the the ideal man or woman. You know, so they have to go to psychotherapists to deal with all these these guilt problems that arise from grasping soap bubbles with no soul to them, no heart, but just empty phenomena that we endlessly recreate through grasping guilty memories. Or living for the future. In the future, I'll get enlightened and I'll live happily ever after. Or maybe, you know, when you practice meditation, sometimes you feel you'll never get enlightened. And you think, I shouldn't desire to get enlightened. And then you read about how you know, great masters even let go of the desire for enlightenment. So that's inspiring, you know, to think of the, even the desire to be enlightened is, is still sakyaditi. But what is it like to feel, I want to get enlightened? And you reflect on that, not just deny it because famous ajans say that it's a form of desire, but it's like this, the desire to get something you don't have is like this. Or get rid of bad habits that you identify with, wanting to get rid of the kilesas, the defilements, the fear, the anger, the jealousy, wanting, because we don't want these kind of emotions. We'd like to be saints, you know, perfect examples of monks, perfect nuns, always filled with metta, compassion, the famous, you know, beautiful images of perfection, of human perfection. But humans are not, their basic nature is imperfect. So in terms of the reality, 
you know, when we're grasping imperfection, we can't help but feel imperfect. So, uh, being having been a monk for so many years, you hear so many people say, I've been practicing meditation for 20 years and I I still get angry, I still feel jealous, I feel a lot of guilt. And because you haven't reflected on Dhamma, you've merely tried to find happiness through some kind of tranquilizing conscious awareness into one state of kind of tranquility. And when the conditions for tranquility aren't present, then you aren't tranquil anymore and you resent it and you feel you're, you're not meditating well or you can't meditate. But whether you think you're a good meditator or people say you're a good meditator or you believe you're not a very good meditator, what is that right now in terms of the reality of Santitiko or Kalika Dhamma? You know, is that maybe in terms of the way you define meditation, you aren't very good at that. So how do you define meditation? What do you think meditation is a kind of generic term for almost any kind of mental exercise? So then you you form an opinion about what, or you hold to a view about what you've been taught about right meditation, and you can't do that. So then you take the assumption you can't meditate. But in terms of reflection, you can be aware this feeling, I can't meditate, is like this. It's just a, a feeling, words, thoughts that come into your mind that you cling to and in order to reflect, you have to let go of the words, not get rid of them. It's not like annihilating these words, or you, you shouldn't think them, but whatever you're thinking, you let that be what it is. It is like this, and it arises and ceases. And that's what we call bhavana in Pali language, or translated in English as meditation. So that's why I gave an encouragement not to believe what your mind tells you, because your mind tells you all kinds of lies, deceptions. Because that's how minds work, they're conditioned. They're habit patterns, ways of thinking, particular stances we take how we see ourselves in the world that we live in. But for reflection, it's like this. Is it just a wake-up call to pay attention, to let go of what you're feeling in the moment, to just observe it, it's like this. So feeling, I'm not a good meditator, is like this. 
And so it's a relaxed attention. It's not a kind of forced attention, trying to pay attention, trying to figure it out, trying to form an opinion about it. So it's it's effortless. Where when we oftentimes form an opinion about what good meditation is, it takes a lot of effort to concentrate, to focus, to focus, have one-pointed awareness on an object, takes a certain amount of effort. But reflection, it doesn't take any effort, it's just this reminding. It's more or less letting go, relaxing, and being the witness. It's like this, not the judge, not the critic. So feeling guilty about things you remember is like this. And it can kind of sustain that. You're just aware of it. It feel, you know, you're aware of how that particular combination of words, thoughts, what it feels like. And as you begin to let go and relax, you notice that it has no sustaining power. It's nothing, there's nothing to it. Are you going to believe it or disbelieve it, try to suppress it, deny it, or convince yourself you're really at heart a good meditator? You can do all kinds of things like that to kind of just make yourself feel better or feel worse, or feel that you're, you're, you're not a really good monk or a good nun because you, you're not perfect and you have doubts and fears, and you shouldn't, then that's conceptual proliferation. That can go on endlessly through the, through the night. Sometimes people can't sleep because they're endlessly proliferating about their faults or fears or worries. So in terms of right now, the future, When we grasp the idea of the future, there's a lot to worry about. Pandemics, climate change, terrible tornado destroyed towns in, in the United States yesterday. All kinds of unknown factors that, about, you know, possible traumas, horrible scenarios about the future being total destruction or whatever, however far your your imagination takes you. What is that? It's fear. You know, suddenly you dread the future. And dread is like this. So wherever, no matter how many how long you get carried away with your emotions, 
you know, sometimes we forget about reflecting and we just get carried away. There comes a point, and this is, I'm encouraging you to trust this, where we suddenly realize what we're doing. It's like, and then we say to ourselves, it's like this. This fear, this irrational fear, this obsessive guilt is like this. And in this kind of moment, you're actually relaxing, letting go, and letting it be. You're not claiming it personally, judging it, but just recognizing it is what it is. And it's a sankara, it's a condition, rises and ceases according to other conditions. So the unshakable heart is here and now. It's with us all the time. You know, we just ignore it or don't notice it because of the flappable habit patterns that we cling to and identify with either through grasping or trying to suppress them. So these are the two extremes, the grasping, believing it, or just trying to get rid of it through aversion, through fear. And as long as there's a sense of a separate self, as long as you're identifying with the body as what you are, then there's, this is going to be the pattern of your life for the rest of your life, whether you're a seminar or a lay person. Because you're not a physical body. The body is a condition, is a sankhara, And all the conditioning, the silapata baramasa, the conventional conditioning, cultural conditioning, social conditioning, religious conditioning, all our education, liberalism, conservatism, all of it are conditions just like the body. All sankaras are impermanent. Then if I'm not this body, then what am I? It's a good question. Because, you know, anything seems like me, it's having a, a physical form. But when you reflect on the body, rather than I cling to it and identify with it, or just believe it's not self because it says so in the scriptures, you have to reflect the body's like this. It operates according to the laws of nature. It has to be fed, has to be rested. Its functions, autonomic system, we have no control over that. All we have to do is 
put food in our mouths, chew it, swallow it, and then the rest, the body does all by itself according to the laws of its nature, all conditioned. So what am I if I'm not a body? So even the what am I are just words, but it's, it's to be reflected upon again and again. Because you don't need to know who you are because you are. You're not a thing. You're not a sankara, you're not a condition. And then try to imagine what that would be if you're not any of these things. What am I if I'm not something? I must, you know, I want, uh, all my life I've assumed I was something or other. And so this question leaves the mind quite empty because there's nothing there. What am I? So you can't really find yourself as anything. And that's liberation, that's enlightenment. That's freedom. Because as long as you bind yourself to phenomena, to conditions, you're always somebody, something, doing something, trying to get something, trying to control something, being caught in habits, some of them good, some of them not very good. And that's how we spend our lives. And it's interesting to reflect on elderly people because we are at the ending of our lives, you know, a lifetime, so many years. You've got parents, grandparents, friends, and so forth, elderly people that are going to die in the next few years. And if they've never learned to reflect on Dhamma and the way it is, then they are the, you know, caught in the memories of the past or fear of death. So you notice how elderly people can go on endlessly about their past because that's what they remember. The future when you're old is usually about death and getting more decrepit speaking personally. So you can see your body kind of fading out because that's what it's supposed to do. So it's not suffering in that if you see it for what it is. You could live in the past. People like me to talk about my past. And I get tired of talking about it because everybody wants to know what my past is love. <laughs> and so 
I have the stories available. <clears throat> but the awakened state, is, there's no path to it. It's pure. So on a conventional level, I can, you know, write an autobiography about where I was born and so forth, and uh, my youth, when I became a monk, and on and on like that, that's all memory. Some of it accurate, some of it kind of inaccurate. There's so much to remember when you're 87 years old. So when I get all the details right, I have a certificate, birth certificate, so I'm certain I was born. <laughs> so that, that's, I can assure you, this form was born. And there's proof. But that is also an illusion, isn't it? If what, if you identify with what is born, then you're caught in the illusion of time and space. So time and space, you know, space is, is an illusion. Space is, but yet space is a, is a good reflection because it, you can perceive space. I've given many talks on how to use space as a meditation. But if there was no space, there'd be no forms. You know, so space is absolutely necessary for forms to manifest. Earth, fire, water, air, space, the elements, necessary. Consciousness through the senses to see the beauty, ugly, pleasant, unpleasant experiences through seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. But beyond space and form is consciousness. So space and form arise because there's consciousness. And consciousness isn't conditioned. It's not cultural, it's not personal, but it's here and now, apparent here and now. So it's all well put by the Buddha himself in his basic teachings, this, uh, this relationship of consciousness, space. They're called the immeasurables. And without consciousness, without space, there be no forms. The forms are what we identify with. We don't identify with the space. So we bind ourselves to the limitation of the form of, of the body, the human body. And the human bodies are all different. You know, why are some people born deformed? Or why are there disabled babies or mentally uh, inadequate children? 
Why is there problems of, why aren't we all equal if we're born? And these forms are really what we are. Some have beautiful forms, some have ugly forms. Some are intelligent, some are stupid. There's babies born blind with two heads or Siamese twins. Things like, what, why, why is that coming about? Is that, are they really persons that have to live a life identified with a distorted human form? That's unfair, isn't it? According to the way we think. It's not right. If there was a God, he would create everybody equal. You know, equally healthy, equal in form. Because the ideal of justice and fairness is about perfection. Perfect, about how things should be if everything was perfect. But the reflective ability isn't about reflecting on perfection. It's about reflecting on the way it is. The very nature of all forms is imperfect. Because there's nothing equal about birth and death. So this is reflecting on the way it is. Not, I'm not trying to tell you the way it is. It may sound like that, but it's this encouragement to trust yourself to do this. It's very simple. It's not like a complex technique that only the very gifted, spiritually evolved individuals can do. That kind of thinking comes from the thinking mind, you know, about who's spiritually evolved and who isn't. And we have our opinions about ourselves or others, you know, about who's advanced spiritually, who has the baramis, the accumulated virtues from the past, from previous lives, to be enlightened in this lifetime, or some monks I know are practicing meditation to become enlightened in their next lifetime, and uh, or when the Maitreya Buddha ar arrives, wanting to be reborn at the time of Maitreya Buddha, and uh, they have create all these Im images of a future rebirth. What are we doing? You know, we're not reflecting on the way it is. We're imagining how we'd like it to be. I didn't quite make it in this life, but the next one I'm going to, I'm going to be Maitreya Buddha. That could be really <laughs> arrogant conceit. But Maitreya Buddha is a nice concept. Nothing wrong with it. You know, it's a beautiful concept. And that's the way it is. It arises, ceases, like all concepts, whether they're beautiful or horrible. So it's not a matter of just trying to fill your mind with beautiful concepts, because that's impossible. Because so much of our experience isn't beautiful. 
through these forms that we have to live in for a lifetime. We have to experience beauty and ugliness, pleasure and pain, sickness, health, youth, old age, death, loss of loved ones. And there's nothing we can do about it. We try to make it so that everybody lives happily ever after, forever and ever. Only in fairy tales does that happen. So the way it is, is not depressing, it's liberating. To let go of birth and death is to relax and be the awareness itself. And if you want an identity, that's what you really are. But even let go of that. Don't claim it as my true self is the awareness. Because that can also, you know, if we cling to that as an identity, it's still, the, the problem is still there. But to see the way it is, is, is a reminder to awaken in the present moment. It's like this. And it can only be like this for each one of us. And so you reflect on it. it's like this, is not judging it or comparing it with anyone else or some ideal. And by repeatedly doing this in daily life, this doesn't doesn't need to be just on retreats or special events. But in our daily life, in daily working life, we can do this. This is a very, it integrates into working life, into ordinary life very well. So I offer this as a reflection.